Alright, so my name's Jed. I'm an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is uh, September 23rd, 2014. Um, I got 30? What is it? 25 minutes from now. 25 minutes. Uh, what do you want to talk about? Did y'all watch that debate? <laughs> um, no. Uh, I, I, I'll respect this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, drugs will probably come up. I'll slip. It just happens. But I shot up alcohol too, so I think I double qualify. Um, so I'm from uh, what it was like. I'm from South Carolina. Um, did not grow up in an alcoholic home. My parents uh, never smoked cigarettes. Um, good Christian folk. Uh, all they had was those little bottles of Sutter Home wine uh, for anniversaries. Um, like four of them every year so I could steal, steal two of them and get away with it. And um, No real traumas or anything when I was a kid. Um, the things I remember, and I always say it because it, it shaped my life, was I do remember um, coming home from, uh, from school one day. I had, like, kissed a girl in kindergarten. I told my mom about it. She says, Jed, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. That's sinful. And so from that moment on, I was like, oh, my desires are sinful. I'm afraid of hell. And so I had this seriously deep shame um, that really would shape the rest of the next like 15 years, right? So I had this uh, like fear of hell, fear of hell, and fear of God. And it wasn't until I first discovered alcohol uh, in all of its forms that I was like released from it, right? And um, my I had arrived moment was actually with, with cough medicine in, uh, in eighth grade um, because uh, in South Carolina it's a, it's a dry um, the blue laws there are intense it was easier to find cocaine than it was alcohol so that that's really the only reason it was you know uh, that I didn't go straight into alcohol at first um, was just ease of access right um, and then I got caught um, doing some other outside issues so I started getting drug tested and this is when the internet first came out and so I clackety clack oh you can find stuff at the grocery store and get really messed up doesn't show up on a drug test so through my parents good intentions it really pushed me into doing crazier and crazier things right and um, because I kind of had this shame around my natural urges you know being a teenage boy having said urges but being too guilty to act on them I found that if I drank enough then I could do things that I wanted guilt-free right so that's where that connection really started and it started the shame cycle where um, the whole mess up oh dear God forgive me repentance shame that whole cycle started right uh, I had my first overdose when I was 15 I wound up in my first uh, outpatient treatment center when I was 15, um, went to my first NA meeting when I was 15. Um, my sponsor at the time ended up calling me, asking him if I could find him some weed, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, I remember showing up to a party that I saw my entire home group there, and when I walked in, everyone kind of put the beer behind their back, and then they're like, oh, uh, okay, we're all drinking. It's all a joke, right? And so that was like, that was... Uh, my first introduction into 12-step programs was that everybody was full of crap and everyone's just secretly getting drunk, right? Um, 
I also, because of my deeply held religious convictions, I, I saw the words, uh, I'm kind of like, I saw the word God and I was like, great. I saw a higher power and I was like, what is this satanic blasphemy or whatever? Um, and I, I would use that to manipulate my parents into getting me out of treatment centers I didn't like. Like, mom, they're trying to get me to believe in this false God. Oh, honey, come home. Um, <clears throat> it worked like like gangbusters every time. But so that's you know I had it back then. I truly thought that, and you know there is like a line that gets crossed, right? You know you go from you know the book talks about the different types of drinkers, uh, heavy, and eventually there's this line that gets crossed where you, you lose the power of choice, right? So at first you know I really had control. And I found that um, it gave you, like, I would put myself in these crisis situations, uh, and there's a lot of attention on you when you're in that situation, right? If you call your, you know, especially back, you know, in high school, if you call your, if you're that kid that call on your friends, like, oh, I'm drunk, I want to kill myself. Everybody runs to your rescue, right? And it's a lot of attention. So I thought that I knew what I was doing, and I thought that I was doing these things on purpose, and in my head I was only going to, drink and use until I was 21 and then I was going to put all that foolishness behind me, right? So things got bad enough that I got sent to my first um, inpatient treatment center and it was a four-month waiting list and during that time I was like, well, I better go down the list and cross off things I haven't tried because it's about to be over. So I ended up um, doing heroin. Um, I'll try not to talk specifically about it. If you are just an alcoholic, please don't Note the similarities, not the differences, right? It's, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Um, so by the time I got to that treatment center, I was absolutely, like, needed to be there. Um, that, that, the first one I went to, went to a, a, a fundamentalist Christian rehab in Lenore, North Carolina. They did exorcisms on me. Um, no, no joke. It was a very, very interesting experience. Um, Nothing about the steps. Their philosophy was God has healed you. You're good to go. Um, the first week I was home, I found whipped cream in my refrigerator, sucked the nitrous, and, and there you go. Like the first week. Um, so this is really what started the next 10 years of my life of, of getting in the, the rehab cycle, right? So... I will never be one to, and I mean, it's not just because I, I work at one, but I'll never be one to knock treatment centers because never, I am, I am the type of alcoholic, never in my life have I been able to come off the street into a meeting and stop. Like, I have to be stopped. Like, I have to get separated, which they are great for. You've literally got to lock me away, and sometimes that doesn't even work, but I had to get separated, right? So... Uh, I got, that's when I moved to Louisiana um, in 2005, two weeks before Hurricane Katrina. And I called my parents. I was like, you sent me here to die. Like, what the hell? <laughs> um, yeah, I went to uh, St. Christopher's in Baton Rouge. was there for 12 months. Um, actually, a, a, a guy that I was in there with 15 years ago, he's been my best friend ever since, um, is here tonight. Uh, he stayed sober the whole time like a jerk. Um, <laughs> So that was my first like big book boot camp. They were old school, you know, this, this, this is actually the program of recovery and this is what you do. Um, I also ended up getting hepatitis C from the very first needle I used, like an after school special, you know. Um, 
So I had to go through the treatment for it back then, which was something called interferon, which is like chemotherapy. It's also one in 10 uh, patients commit suicide as a side effect. It's very bad on your mental health. So um, I say all that to say I was 12 months sober. I'm on this uh, medication that is making me very, very insane. And I make my first real mistake sober. Um, I get into a relationship with someone in Baton Rouge. I go back to South Carolina <clears throat> um, and meet up with my uh, alcoholic ex-girlfriend. Uh, we hook up. She calls me months later, tells me she's pregnant. I tell her I can't handle it. You need to do something about it. She has an abortion um, at like my request. I did that sober, right? Uh, and that's when I found out that uh, sober me cannot tolerate uh, doing those sorts of things, right? Um, so I, I did. I'm not going to stay uncomfortable, right? And I had no other solution then, so I turned to drinking it and what I know. And that's really what started the cycle because <clears throat> I started going to treatment when I was 17. I never had a job. I was never an alcoholic that, like, had things uh, or resources. So... I was sent away, my parents would call and they say, hey, he relapsed, what should we do? Send him back to treatment. And that's what I did. I, I've been to 18 treatment centers in seven states over from when I was 17 um, till I was 26. Um, and I want, you know, it was just the same, the same thing with different places. Um, I am a really good starter and I was, I was a 90-day all-star, um, and the pattern would be, and all of my relapses would end in like serious, I'm also like a chronic overdoser. Um, I've had eight hospitalized overdoses. I was in a coma for four days. Peter prayed at my hospital bedside for that. Um, the thing was, when you're the person overdosing in a coma, you don't remember that. It's, it doesn't really have much gravity I was asleep you know once again all I remember is people around me worried about me all this attention and so it was like horrible thing would happen go to treatment oh you get some weight on you get a new haircut you know get a new tattoo you look so great you're doing great that would wear off because like a normal human I start doing good people are supposed to back off like like what do you want a cookie for paying your bills like welcome to the world but I did you know I was still just young and dumb um, and I couldn't I, I for years I went to rooms like this and used it as a dating service a taxi service a bank um, a social club um, getting girlfriends was my main goal in that and then I would make them my higher power of course something would go wrong I'd go back to my other higher power right that that was literally I could not break out of that and I would just meet new friends in rehab that knew new cons or new ways to get high or drunk and we would go on crazy runs together you know it's like an all-star team of, of addicts or alcoholics right um, and I just did that for years um, Eventually, that, I can't really, I mean, I am absolutely alcoholic, alcoholic to the core. I can't, you know, the type of alcoholic that, you know, 
breaks his own arm to go to the hospital to get pills. You know, desperate, living nightmare. Um, whenever I put something in my body that makes me feel good, normal life becomes intolerable. I have to feel, I will now rearrange my life to get that feeling 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There goes the job, there goes everything else. I can maybe, I did learn, you know, because I used to think too, like, oh, you mean if I take a sip of alcohol, that means I'm screwed? It's like, no, I, I can stretch it, you know, I can, I can, if I re the longest I really was able to hold it together was, was two years, you know, and that's because I had uh, prescriptions that I was selling, so I was financially independent for once, right? Um, and <clears throat> throughout all this, though, I always kept the the core of like my of, of faith and you know God, and I always I kept I kept trying. You know, eventually though, I began to think I was constitutionally incapable. I went through a period of time where like there's no such thing as a disease. I've just been indoctrinated. Y'all are a cult. This is all bull crap. I'm just gonna. It's only a problem because you're. If, if you would just let me drink, then we'd all be square. You know. Um, and they just let me drink, and I wound up in East Baton Rouge Parish Prison, right? And that was, where are we at on time? Uh, go to 35 after. Okay. Um, so years and years and years of, of the same thing, overdoses, hell, nightmares, uh, finally, finally wound up in prison. Um, I had a spiritual experience in prison. Like, if you're looking for God, just go to prison. There, there he is. Um, <laughs> That was the first and only time in my life that supernaturally, straight up, the desire to use was lifted from me, like uh, in, in a spiritual experience. What I did with that, I moved into an Oxford house. <clears throat> what I did with that was like a petulant child and was just like, I don't, I don't want to drink anymore, so like, I don't need to go to meetings, I don't need a sponsor, I don't need any of this. Like, I, it was completely ego driven uh what happened with that is i got like a straight up pornography addiction uh which is often in oxford houses then i started you know <laughs> you know nobody wants to talk about it but you know we'll, uh, we'll talk about it uh doing i was doing drunk things drunk things sober um and then I started like, you know, taking pre-workout before work uh, and then, <laughs> you know, squirting Mio in my red line and like, you know, just doing real shady things. And um, there we go again. Um, then I'm, I'm on another run. Right. Um, and what I learned from that was. Things that are given to me, I don't really appreciate, and that was truly a gift that I squandered, and I needed to do maintenance to keep it up, right? So what, what happened was um, my last overdose was August 26th, uh, the day after my birthday. My girlfriend at the time had gone to treatment early, because uh, I can always hang on a little bit longer, and <laughs> before she left, she was like, don't do what we usually do because I'm gone. I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And I, I swear, the first, her first phone call after seven days, when she called me, I was in the emergency room after overdosing. And I answered and I go, don't be mad. Don't be mad. Um, 
So I, when I showed back up to treatment for the last time um, in, on September 23rd, uh, I was, had everything I owned in my car, was living out of my car, which had a title loan on it. I had a 10-year suspended sentence that I've been running for my probation officer for months. Um, my nobody, nobody would talk to me anymore. My parents said, you can get sober or not. We do not care. Um, that's on you. Um, there, there was nothing else. End of my rope. And I showed up, and I was like, I, you can try to get me sober. I don't know if it's going to work out. We'll see. Um, and like everything always happens, I'm, I'm doing good. Um, I got the girlfriend. I'm 90 days sober. She gets out before me, and she calls me one night and breaks up with me while I'm in treatment. And they had just given me my driver's license to uh, go look for a job. Uh, I got the phone call. I hung up. I walked outside, and I punched a wall, and I broke my pinky. And immediately, the thought was, leave treatment, go to the emergency room, get some pain pills, F all this. And I was given a moment of clarity where it was like, whoa, that's all it took. That's all it took to do this whole thing all over again. And instead, I went into my room, and that's when I really had my... Um, Step one, two, and three experience where I completely surrendered. I said, I cannot do this. You're going to whoever, whatever you are, you are going to have to do this for me. Uh, we had it out, right? Me and me and God. And after that, all I, all I simply did was just everything people told me to do. Um, like I drank the Kool-Aid. I, I just did. I moved into an Oxford house. I joined a book study. Um, I brought meetings to treatment centers. I sponsored people. Um, I just did that. I worked a minimum wage job at CC's Coffee for nine months, um, and life got better. My my family finally invited me back home for Christmas uh, a year at a year sober, and when they picked me up from the airport, they were weird, and I was like, "What's going on?" And they're like, "We totally expected you to be drunk," and it was like, "Oh yeah," like, "Ugh, sorry," <laughs> like, you know. Um, but they'd be, they'd be crazy not to, right? Um, so yeah, I finally got sober and with, with the time left, I'll, I'll say that this last year has absolutely been the hardest. And I listened to, um, Joe B, Tom B, one of those three letter names, um, has a speaker take about emotional sobriety and he called it the five year menopause. And I totally related. Um, you know, the problem with working in treatment is the last thing I want to do after work is like go to work, you know, go to go to a meeting. And COVID was the perfect excuse. Like I was already kind of edging my way out. COVID was the perfect excuse to be like, oh, can't go, don't have to. Um, and I really backed off of everything I was doing. Um, and I mean, sobriety has given me gifts that I can't repay like I, I just got to you know bury my grandpa sober and you know just to be there for my mom was just some of the coolest things I've, I've ever gotten to do and they were always like my biggest supporters um, and I, I don't know I got really really resentful at, at all at all of this at the program and I was relying on the things that got me, you know, I think my higher power knew that I needed really intense spiritual experiences early on to keep me sober. 
as I matured, I was supposed to be able to, to, to walk on two feet and not need those experiences, right? So I, I would tend to treat my God like a drug, like I wanted, to, I, wanted that, I wanted that hit, right? And life is still life. You know, the, the novelty of getting sober is going to wear off. And if, you're, if I'm not doing things to maintain it, I'm going to lose it. And I've, I've lost so many friends recently. I'm going to a funeral tomorrow of like... It makes me really mad. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, like, I, I went through a period where I was like, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with addiction or alcoholism anymore. Because it's like this, this above anything else. Like, it seems like you have to be in the presence of death and like despair all the time. And it's like, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it. But that's just me thinking, you know, oh, look how this person's death affects me. And it's like, you know, but that that's, it's a disease of, of thinking and perception, right? And so, I, you know, I, I got a sponsor again. Um, I, I got a sponsee again. I, I was asked to do this again. Um, things I didn't want to do, but, you, you know, I never, I never want to go through the hell that I went through again, um, but I will eat a bullet, you know, like that's if I'm not, you know, mental health is, is another huge thing that, that I have to take care of and I have to address. Um, and it, it's, it's so funny when I, when I finally just let go of what I want and I finally just do the program as it's laid out and I do the steps like I feel better like I don't know why and I hate that I don't know why I push back against it so much I guess it's just the the terminal uniqueness thing and um but don't die like stay alive I mean I, I can't even like put it any more simply than that it's 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 so much better. Like life is hard today, yes, but it's I have problems in areas of my life that I used to not have areas. Like that's really huge. Like for all for everything that I could complain about, it's like yo, know, I have a wife and like a house and it's crazy, you know, I don't know, stuff that a low down <laughs> dirty junkie alcoholic like me would never dream to have right and when I remember that I had nothing to do with any of that I'm in a much better spot when I start thinking that oh my god I got that wife and I got the house and I have this car and I need to do everything I need to do to hold on for dear life then I'm gonna lose it because I had nothing to do with it I had nothing to do with getting sober I, I just right place right time I, I gave up I surrendered you know I, I had the I was given the desire to want to quit and I was given the desire to it, it's like you will I will plateau and it's I, there's only one you know I'm either gonna have to I, I'm big on find find new experiences don't get don't rest on on your laurels I mean do whatever you want but um, for me, um, I have to constantly, 
Um, I think it boils down to also it's just finding someone in your life. I don't care who it is, sponsor preferably, finding, especially for true, for people that are in, in halfway houses, you must have someone in your life that you can be 100% honest with without fear of consequence because that is what is going to kill you where you can't get honest about something you did because you'll lose your place to live. So then you open the door to lying and you will snowball your way to, to death when if just you honesty, like community, fellowship, unity, like honesty, letting people know what, what's going on with you. I don't care who it is, but just someone. Um, and just, you know, trust God, clean house, and, and help others. You know, it's, we, we are all we have for each other. Nobody can help me like y'all, you know. So thank you for uh, letting me be a part of that. That's all.